Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In The Bible, With and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently, published by Harper One in 2020, Amy Gillivine and Mark Tzvi Brettler take readers on a guided tour of the most popular Hebrew Bible passages quoted in the New Testament to show what the texts mean in their original contexts and then how Jews and Christians over time understood those same texts. Amy Gillivine is University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies, and Mary Jane Worthen, Professor of Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School and Department of Jewish Studies. Mark Tfi Brettler is the Bernice and Morton Lerner Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Duke University. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, both of you. Happy to be with you. Delightful to be with you. So to get started, could you please tell us uh, a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Uh, let's start with, uh, with AJ. Well, actually, we should start with Mark because the impetus for this was actually Mark's work on the Jewish Study Bible for Oxford University Press. Great. Let's start with Mark. <laughs> why, not, why not? So I've become a bit of a study Bible person. So a couple of decades ago, Oxford University Press approached me because they've been publishing various editions of a work called the New the Oxford Annotated Bible, which then became the New Oxford Annotated Bible. And after a few editions, they decided it was time to have a Jew involved in that particular publication. And I really commend them to, for doing that because the particular reason was the main Oxford editor felt that the Hebrew Bible, or what was called in that volume, the Old Testament, was not being represented fairly uh, in contrast to the New Testament, that there were several biases, including a very typical Christian bias of the Old Testament, and here I'm using that term on purpose, a book of law and the New Testament, a book of love. So I did that. I had fun doing that. After that happened, this is such a Jewish story. It's like, I got uh, this caused this caused this caused that. So after that happened, I was asked to co-edit the Jewish Study Bible, which is uh, a short commentary entirely by Jews on the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Maybe later we'll talk about terminology, but for now we'll use all those terms more or less interchangeably. And then after, while I was doing that and enjoying it, I said to the editor, this is really fun. Uh, I like doing this sort of work. I'm learning a lot. Uh, maybe I should do a, be involved in a sequel. Maybe I should do the New Testament. And we should have a Jewish annotated New Testament as a second volume of the Jewish Study Bible. Now, I still don't know if I was serious or joking when I said that. But... About three years later, he came back to me and said, Mark, I've discussed this idea with the people at Oxford University Press, 
and you have a green light for co-editing this. And he was the Shadchan, he was the matchmaker who set me up with AJ. My field is really largely uh, the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. Clearly, you needed someone who was an expert in the New Testament. And AJ is one of the leading Jewish or even not Jewish general New Testament scholars. So he put us together and we did that volume. Uh, AJ, you'll remember the years. When was the first edition? The first edition was 2011 and the second edition was 2017. And there will be a third edition because the Jewish annotated is keyed in uh, to the standard kind of liberal Protestant Bible translation, the New Revised Standard Version. But there's a new New Revised Standard Version, which means we have to have a new Jewish annotated New Testament. Oh, and not only that, we actually have a German translation to Yudhishir Klert, right? Um, which, although it's our text, our second edition, um, there are a couple of additional articles written by Christians as well as an introduction written by Christians. And the amazing thing here is that the bishops, the Protestant bishops of the states of Hanover and Bavaria provided copies of this volume to all of their member churches. So it's having an instant bestseller. This is the best way of doing it. Anyway, that's about the Jewish annotated. So we get done with the Jewish annotated. This gets to your question. And we have all this extra stuff that you can't put in annotations because there's too much to say. Uh, so Mark and I, in collaboration with a, a friend of ours at Harper One, decided, well, what will we do with this extra material, particularly as Mark mentioned, or as you mentioned, the material that gets redeployed from Isaiah or the Psalms or Genesis into the Gospels or into the letters of Paul? And then how did Jews at the time read that text? Otherwise, how did Jews read it subsequently? And that's how we came to the Bible with and without Jesus. Right. And so speaking of which, um, what was the goal for this book? And in particular, were you trying to reconcile Jewish and Christian interpretations of the Jewish Bible? AJ, why don't you start? <laughs> oh, gosh, I have no interest in, in like reconciling in the sense of this, you know, kumbaya moment or or it's not like we, we have to say, oh, we all agree or we're all climbing up the same mountain. To the contrary, what we want to do with this idea of with and without is to celebrate both the commonalities and the differences um, to show Jewish readers how Christians read texts that, that may be familiar to them, to show Jewish readers that Christian readers take stuff from the Tanakh, from our Bible, that we don't pay any attention to at all. Uh, Mark likes to use the idea of two-point font versus 60-point font and 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 really turn those into major texts um, and uh, to see the logic in Christian readings. And for, for Christians, particularly for me personally, those Christians who keep writing to me saying, gee, AJ, if you just read Isaiah carefully or if you just read Genesis carefully, you would see that the entire thing points to Jesus. And, you know, from a Christian perspective, but from a Christian perspective, it does. It's just that from a Jewish perspective, it doesn't. So now instead of having to cut and paste email responses, I can just say, go buy the Bible with and without Jesus. And you'll see why Jews do not come to the same conclusion that you do, because we each have different reading strategies. We each understand the canon differently and the words in the canon differently. Yes, I'm going to pick up on that. Uh, and in terms of your question, you use the word goal 
in the singular. We actually had different goals, which really depend on the two main readerships that we had for the book. We are well aware of the fact that many Jews are incredibly uncomfortable reading the New Testament. And we think for a variety of reasons, which maybe we'll get into later, that uh, Jews, especially Jews in America, which as we see from recent Supreme Court uh, cases, is more and more of a Christian country, really need to be familiar with this text and to be introduced to it in a way in which they may feel comfortable reading it. And many Jews continue to be afraid, in some cases perhaps legitimately, that if they're reading a Christian introduction to the New Testament, there will be some proselytizing involved. We are not proselytizing to the Jewish audience. So that is uh, one, one set of goals for one audience to increase greater literacy. And then to the Christian audience, as AJ mentioned, I also get you know, some of those emails. How is it possible not to read Isaiah chapter 53 in relation to Jesus? And part of what we wanted to show to Christian audiences is, is really two things. That yes, it, in general, it is possible. It was read without Jesus for several centuries before the New Testament was written. And even after the New Testament was written, chapters like Isaiah chapter 53 remain part of the Jewish Bible because Isaiah remains part of the Jewish Bible. And these chapters are read non-Christologically. And just going back to your word reconcile, where I think both AJ and I are reacting very strongly against reconcile. Yeah, reconciliation certainly has its place, but not everything can or should be reconciled. And in that sense, the subtitle of our book, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently, maybe we'll come back to this. Uh, I'll say that in the title, the word and, and the Bible with and without Jesus is the most important word. And then the subtitle, differently, is the most important word. And we really want people to understand how the same Bible really becomes very different Bibles in these two different Jewish communities, or really many different Bibles in these different communities as a result of different strategies of reading. And our goal is not to say, this is really where this book is so different than most previous books. Our goal is not to say, I'm right and you're wrong, but to explain the origin of these different types of readings uh, as a way of increasing appreciation of different viewpoints of different religions. Right. So, uh, of course, the, the Christian Bible includes both the, the um, original, the, the, the Jewish Bible, as well as, you know, many other uh, books that are uh, sacred to Christians. Um, but do Jews and Christians really share the same Jewish Bible? That is, do, do they really, uh, do they share and, and, and read the same passages and focus on the same specific texts, uh, um, AJ? Well, it, as, as with most questions regarding religion, the, the answer is yes and no. Um, so are we reading the same Bibles? No, in the sense that, uh, to use the Christian term, the Old Testament, um, it has a different focus. It has a different canonical order. Uh, the Christian Old Testament <clears throat> ends with the Nevi'im, ends with the prophets. 
So the last book in the Christian Bible was the prophet Malachi, who predicts the coming of Elijah, which is like the, you know, the Messianic age. So the Old Testament in canonical order becomes a story of, you know, the Old Testament is promised and then you hit the fulfillment in the new. Uh, And the whole Old Testament points toward Jesus. So Christian readers will see in the, many Christian readers will see at the beginning of Genesis, a fall, the so-called fall of Adam and Eve. um, And that gets fixed by Jesus' redemption. Um, They will see the Holy Spirit hovering over the the face of the deep, the Ruach Elohim. Jews might not see that. They might just see a strong wind or a mighty wind. Um, Jews, our canonical order ends with the Ketuvim. So the last book in the Jewish Bible, or as now a post-biblical term, the Tanakh says, um, is Second Chronicles, which is the edict of King Cyrus of Persia telling the Jews in exile, go home, or in effect, make Aliyah. Uh, so the Christian canon, the Christian Old Testament points toward the future. The Jewish canon says go home. Uh, the Christian canon has one specific meaning, which is a drive toward Jesus. And the Jewish canon means as many things as there are Jews to read it. Yes, let me pick up on that and say one and a half new things. Uh, also, an additional difference is that Jews continue to read the Bible in Hebrew and that Hebrew-centeredness is very important, and the translations that Jews use are from the Hebrew. Uh, Christians are often reading the Bible from a vernacular language. In the case of America, they are typically reading it from English, and that English translation is not always translated directly from the Hebrew. Uh, Traditionally, Catholics are reading English translations of the Vulgate, of the Latin translation by Jerome, uh, if we mention the New Revised Standard Version. So there, that does not always follow the Hebrew text. Sometimes that follows the ancient Greek text, the Septuagint. In a well-known case in the book of Samuel, there are a couple of verses which probably were accidentally omitted in the standard Hebrew Masoretic text and are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The New Revised Standard Version has restored... A, if we were filming, you would see the scare quotes around the word restored. Yeah, have restored those couple of verses. So actually, in terms of the text itself, we are not reading the same text. And the half a point, this is something that AJ said uh, in my name earlier, but it's too important not to emphasize. Which texts are important differ greatly in both traditions. So in some cases, both the Jewish and, and Christian traditions Uh, find some of the same texts to be really important. So Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is important in both traditions. Or even the second second verse of the Shema prayer from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, about the love of God, etc., that those verses are important in both Jewish and Christian traditions, but there certainly are verses that are very important in Christian tradition, such as Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant. By the way, that term never appears in the Hebrew Bible, but that's a term which is given by modern scholarship to that and some other related passages. And by the way, if you show that passage to most Jews, you read it to them, they have no clue that that passage is contained is from the Tanakh. And they think, oh, well, that, that's a nice Christian edition. <laughs> no, 
it's in the Jewish Bible. It has become much more important within Christian tradition than it is in Jewish tradition. And one of the ways in which you see that it is not super significant in Jewish tradition is it is never used as a haftarah. It's never used as a liturgical prophetic reading. It is not quoted in the liturgy, which quotes all sorts of verses from the Hebrew Bible. So that's a two-point font verse. While in Judaism, and I don't remember what number you use, but uh, 50 points. Point find verse in Christianity. So even if you're reading the same book, and if you agree upon translations, different religious communities think that different verses are especially important. You know, and conversely, there might be some legal material, for example, from the Torah that is very important in Judaism, that is of lesser importance within most Christian denominations. So we are we are and are not reading the same Bible. So that's almost like the line about the English language. The, the, uh, maybe it's from Shaw or someone. It says that, that, that America and England are divided over the same language, you know, that we have this Bible, these texts in common, but it's not necessarily that we're united by, by their shared uh, uh, um Heritage. Yeah. I, I love that line. I think, AJ, I think we use it in the book or I, I use it in, it in, or in some other book. Uh, no one's sure who really said it. It may be Shaw. It is Churchill who popularized that particular line. I mean, the other way of thinking about this is um, we, we're all reading these texts through different lenses. So the Christians are going to read Genesis or Isaiah or Deuteronomy, whatever, through Christian lenses, and they're going to see Jesus. And the Jews, particularly those Jews who were educated within a Jewish system, are going to read those same texts through Jewish lenses. And in fact, they'll see stuff that's technically not in the text. Um, They'll see various glosses on how Jews understand something like an eye for an eye or how we understand the divine call of Abraham. So we're all reading through lenses where we can agree, perhaps, um, is on what these texts might have meant to their original audience. You know, what's the author of Genesis trying to convey? Um, they're historians, apart from any sort of, of culture or tradition or faith confession, can get in and do history. But when it comes to how Jews and Christians over the centuries have read, now we're looking at a different type of interpretation because it's interpretation not based in history, like what happened or why was this written originally, but history in terms of reception. How was this text understood over time? Right. So I'm and, gonna say, let me really just say one thing about that, and then, then I'll let you talk. Uh, <laughs> a bunch, bunch three Jews talking together. Okay. So essentially, what much of the book is, and what you implied in your in your introduction, which is largely correct, is we really have three points in most chapters. Uh, what AJ just mentioned, what the text originally meant, what Jews and Christians can agree about in terms of what it's often called the historical critical study of the text, then Jewish interpretation or interpretations with an S at the end and Christian interpretations. But now that I'm thinking about that, there actually are four points because in many of the chapters, we really go from a triangle. So imagine another point on the top to a nice diamond shape 
where we want to show that even though Jews and Christians traditionally have interpreted these texts very differently, in some ways, if we step back from our religious, particular religious commitments, and look at how the texts can function in the modern world, Jews and Christians can actually come together in, a cons- in constructive ways about how the texts can currently be employed. So in that sense, it's not really reconciliation, but we can find certain commonalities despite the contentious history of polemical interpretation on both sides. All right. Well, that sounds very positive. Um, Speaking of the use of texts, what is proof texting and why do you think it's okay, uh, Mark? Proof texting is just a part of what tradition does. Proof texting, I'm sorry, let me put it this way. Scriptural religion usually involves a scripture that does not change within a religion that has changed greatly over time. And when you have a scriptural religion, it is natural to find an anchor in current contemporary practice in the biblical text. And that is what proof texting does. It is a way of tying contemporary practice to the ancient text. Well, you know, is it okay? I mean, it is not okay if you use proof texting to say, hey, that is what the text meant originally. No, no, no. That, that type of proof texting bothers me as a historical critical scholar a great deal. But in terms of my understanding of the role of scripture in ever-changing religion, uh, proof texting is perfectly natural to me. So in that sense, it's okay. Right, right. And so let's, speaking of texts, uh, let's jump into some texts. How do Jews and Christians understand Genesis 1, the let us make man, uh, AJ? Oi. Well, I mean, it's not like there's a single Jew, Jew think. I mean, I think you suggested before two Jews, three opinions. So that Mark and I even managed to get this book together is a minor miracle here because we have to do um, So uh, there are different Jewish understandings because they've been developed over time. Um, And whether the Jew is, uh, as Mark is, both an historical critic and a practicing Jew, or whether the Jew has no Jewish education but likes gefilte fish, I mean, you're going to have various different explanations. So there's no single one takeaway. Um, Part of Jewish interpretation is also influenced by Christianity because we've grown up, many Jews, over the centuries have have been existing in Christian environments. So we have to deal with the Christian text as well. Traditional Christian readings um, uh, in the beginning rather than when in the beginning. So that's an issue of do you translate with that but at the beginning of Bereshit and take the temporal clause. That's a good Jewish thing to do. Or you just say in the beginning, which is a kind of good King Jamesy way to do it. You know, already on the first word, we're disagreeing. Um, do we translate heavens in the earth because the Hebrew has got a good dual form or we just say heaven? Do we talk about the spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep and conclude, aha, that's the Holy Spirit. That's part of the Trinity and we're good to go. Or do we say it's a mighty wind with Elohim being used in adjectival form? Like we, the old English term God awful, which didn't mean awful. It meant like really stupendous and awesome. So how do we interpret this text? It depends upon who the we is. It also depends upon who our audience is. 
because interpretation will vary depending upon are we in the classroom, are we in shul, are we in the synagogue, um, are we teaching little children, um, are we debating evolutionists or creationists? So the general view is the church is going to see the Christ there and the Trinity there because the church is going to read Genesis 1-1 about God creating the heaven and the earth in light of the first verse of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just to add on that, and then Mark's going to pick up and do more, um, as he does, as we do, um, we find in the Targums, these Aramaic paraphrases of of the Jewish scripture, uh, that one of the circumlocutions, the the words for God, because you didn't want to say God, turns out to be Memra, and Memra in Aramaic means word. So if somebody were to say to a Jew in the second century in Aramaic, in the beginning was the Memra, and the Memra was with God, and the Memra was God, the Jew would have said, no, yes, and... Um, so would that be a Christian reading? Well, if the Jew happened to believe in Jesus, you bet. This is where it gets complicated. (laughs) So we're off to the races. Okay. (laughs) It's often complicated because it also, I think one of the things we neglected to say earlier about whether or not we're reading the same Bible is how much context matters. So when Jews are reading the book of Genesis, they are Sefer Bereshit. They are reading it within the Jewish Bible, Tanakh, Hebrew Bible. Okay, when Christians are reading Genesis chapter one, for example, they are reading it within the larger Bible, which includes the New Testament. So it is natural to connect Genesis chapter one to the first chapter of John, because the context of even the text itself uh, is different. While it is equally natural for for Jew not to have that particular context, and to go back to your question, when you have the plural of naase adam, let us make man, then it is not natural. It is less natural for a Jew to understand it is. Uh, God speaking to Jesus, that would not be a natural Jewish interpretation at all. But Jews will still have to deal with the plural. So some might say, oh, yes, this is a royal plural, as you have in the Queen's English. Uh, The truth is that that's not such a great interpretation because biblical Hebrew in verbs does not have plurals of royalty. Or to say... And by the way, and this I think is correct, and for some people this may even shade into the Christian interpretation. And, and this, the way I phrased it, shade into, is really important because these are not always dichotomous. And some of the medieval interpreters say this, that this is God who is uh, consulting with his heavenly cabinet, with the malachim, with the with the angels, and so forth, so that it actually is in some ways somewhat similar to the Christian interpretation, in that it is recognizing that there are other heavenly beings. You know, I sometimes use the term semi-divine, which is about as clear to me what semi-divine means as you know, half pregnant, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, these do exist in Judaism, and sometimes what is going to happen is 
when, when Jews are trying to polemicize against Christians, and again, these polemics worked in, in both directions, sometimes in cases like that, uh, Jewish interpreters will be very insistent that this needs to be a plural of majesty, even though such a plural does not really exist. So, so you're saying it's, there are actually ancient Jewish sources that understand the let us, the plural that we're talking about, that, ex, um, that existed before the creation of the world to refer to um, some kind of divine entity other than Jesus. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if I remember correctly, that's even in Rashi. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So back then, um, we think about Jews as monotheists, but, you know, in the first century, even the monotheists were, you know, they had other gods um, or other divine beings or gods with a small G. Not sure how to put this, like angels and demons and Satan, who was who was having a thriving time in the first century. Um, So there are all these other divine beings um, and we can Mark Mark uses the term heavenly cabinet. Uh, We can also use the the so-called heavenly host, which is an army. Right. I used to think the heavenly host was like George Jessel or somebody who like welcomed you to dinner, like this is the heavenly host. And you a good um, so, I mean, so there are, there are these other divine beings out there, um, but you have other Jewish interpretations because God forbid there'd only be one Jewish interpretation that God's self-consulting. So God on the throne of justice says, well, if I create humankind, they're going to sin and they're going to mess everything up. And God on the throne of mercy says, yes, but they will do divine will and they, they will repent. So it's God having an internal conversation. There's multiple ways of doing this. Jews from very, very early on knew that the followers of Jesus were interpreting Genesis 126 as part of the Trinity. And then they also do direct uh, counters, like, but all those other verbs that get predicated of, of Elohim, which is a nice plural term, are in the singular. So we know that it's not a Trinity. We know it's only a singular God. So it's it's Jews and, Jews and Jesus followers, and Jesus followers here could be Jews, they could be Gentiles, it's really hard to track that out. Jews and Jesus followers in the early couple of centuries are arguing over what a verse means. In effect, they're both doing proof texting, because it's what you do. Yes, yeah, so, so just to show you that I didn't totally make that up about Rashi, you know, Rashi is indeed quoting from Bereshit Rabbah, from Genesis Rabbah, and Rashi uses the phrase of God, midaber im bet dino. God is speaking with his heavenly judicial council. And uh, again, heaven, heavenly beings are in both traditions. Right. And Rashi is a, a medieval Jewish commentator from France. Oh, no, sorry, medieval Jewish commentator, France, 1040 to 1105, quoting or rephrasing. Uh, Genesis Rabbah, which is a well-known midrashic work from, let's say, the sixth century of the Common Era or so. Right. Okay. Uh, moving along, uh, how do Jews and Christians understand the Adam and Eve story as it relates to gender roles? Ah, gender roles. Well, I mean, Adam and Eve don't play a huge role, comparably speaking, in Judaism as they do in Christianity. Because, you know, like after Genesis 5, they, they more or less disappear. So we get lots of stuff on, well, not lots of stuff, but a fair amount of stuff on things like paradise in the Garden of Eden. That's of interest to later traditions. Adam and Eve, eh, not so much. Um, uh, but Adam and Eve pop back into Christianity, particularly in the letters of Paul and the letters, dis- uh, letters written in Paul's name. 
So Paul in Romans 5, Romans is an epistle in the New Testament. Epistle is just a fancy word for public letter. Um, Paul talks basically about how sin and death entered the world through one man, that's Adam, uh, and how this other man, this new Adam, who was, who was Jesus, who was the Christ, uh, provides the redemption from sin and death. And when we get to another letter attributed to Paul called 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, talking about the Garden of Eden, well, you know, the man was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. And when Eve ate, ate that piece of fruit, which only becomes an apple, like in the 12th or 13th century, when Eve eats this piece of fruit and, and thereby loses her immortality, Adam, who's such a decent guy, you know, such a mensch, Adam solidarity with this woman, you know, takes a bite of the fruit and gives up his, his immortality as well. So the whole thing gets blamed on Eve. And then it's kind of downhill from there. Uh, the church also reads Eve in opposition to Mary. So Eve is the initial virgin who fell and Mary is the perfected virgin who helps bring about redemption. And as they say in Latin, uh, the opposite of Eva Latin for Eve is Ave, as in Ave Maria, Hail Mary. This only works in Latin, by the way. It, so the Jewish tradition also has some negative views about Eve. Uh, there are some midrashim which are really quite insulting of Eve and suggesting that that uh, it was Eve's fault and that women are more carnal, um, uh, need, needed to be guided more, and so on. Uh, but we also have in both Jewish and Christian tradition pushbacks on that. Um, one other way of looking at this is the Jewish tradition. Um, we don't have a Mary by which to make Eve the bad girl. So what do we do? We have Lilith, um, this, this demon um, who wants equality with Adam, can you imagine? Um, and then she becomes the bad girl over against which Eve looks pretty good. So how do we read these stories? One way of summarizing it is we read the stories in Genesis 2-3, which are the Adam and Eve stories in light of other stories. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that great survey is that, <laughs> sure, is that it is not the Christians who first were negative about Eve and blaming it all on Eve, but this already begins uh, in the book of Ben Sirah, who blames the first sin on Eve rather than on Adam. This is one of the things that we talk about in, in that particular chapter. And Ben Sirah is just a very important book to talk about because it, and it is a Jewish book, which is not part of the Jewish or Hebrew Bible or Tanakh, but is part of the Catholic Bible. So here you see all the complications of what you begin to see all the complications of what the word Bible means. But Just and making it even more complicated is that Ben Sirach is occasionally quoted in rabbinic literature. Yes. So it, it, it's messy. <laughs> right. messy. Very messy. Speaking of messes, how was the priesthood understood by ancient Jews and Christians? Well, I mean, part of the problem, and I think this is really where you're going on this, is that Judaism was transformed very, very centrally by the destruction of the temple, of the second temple in the year 70 of the Common Era. And this is something that scholars have really realized uh, only in the last few decades. And we don't mean to say that 
everything was changed in Judaism. But the bottom line is, oh, there's loss of loss of animal sacrifices, for example, and loss of all the priestly functions in the temple. And uh, that simply, when, once that was lost, new classes of leaders started to develop. And Judaism went through all sorts of transformations. Prayer became very important. It existed certainly before the year 70 of the Common Era, but became more important. Uh, the Seder, which so many people misunderstand the Passover Seder, think that this was something that existed in Second Temple times and Jesus's Last Supper was a Seder. Wrong, 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 wrong. Uh, this, the Seder really developed only after the destruction of the Temple in the year 70. And different classes became important after the year 70, including what would eventually become the rabbis, the rabbinic class. Now, again, something that most Jews don't realize is that the earliest occurrence of the term rabbi is in the New Testament and not in rabbinic literature. But so they existed already while the Second Temple was standing where that term existed. But they became really, really important in a sense, replacing the priestly class with the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70. Now, AJ will go on and will tell you how Christianity took the destruction of temple of the temple and essentially allegorized it and understood it differently. So, AJ, your turn. Thank you so much. Um, but we have to go back to the initial question about priesthood and how this differs. So priesthood in Judaism is an inherited position. If your father's a priest, you're a priest. It's an accident of birth. Lucky you. Um, after the destruction of the temple, this doesn't mean much, except in certain synagogues like Orthodox shuls, you get to do the high priestly blessing, which is really kind of cool. Um, oh, and your father, the first honor reading the Torah. And the first honor of reading the Torah. Um, the, uh, or, or saying the blessing before and after. Um the if you're a Levite, which is a sort of subcategory of priests, you know, if your father's a Levite, you're a Levite. You can usually tell by last names. I'm a Levite. I'm a member of an Orthodox synagogue. It does me absolutely no good, but it's nice to know. Um, otherwise, I would have the second Aliyah, the second honor of, of reading the Torah on, on, on Shabbat morning. Okay, so what happens? Priesthood is is basically a technical function so that you you are the one who's involved with offering the sacrifices that mediate between you and God. You are a temple functionary. Okay. So what happens in Christianity is priesthood ceases to is not a, an inherited position because they would have run out of Jews pretty quickly. Um, priesthood in Christianity, and this is primarily a post-New Testament development. The New Testament is concerned with deacons and bishops and apostles and disciples, not so much Christian priests. But priesthood in Christianity becomes a, a voluntary thing. You get in because you've got the skills for it and you've got the desire to become a priest. Um, the initial priesthood was not fully celibate. That comes in much later. So the upshot is uh, priesthood in Judaism is inherited. Priesthood in Christianity is a vocation. You are called to do this. And sometimes we get confused when we think we're, we're all using the same word priest, but we're defining it very differently. And that's part of the problem more broadly of Jewish Christian conversation is that we use the same words, but we don't mean the same things by them, of which Bible might be another example or Shabbat, the Sabbath or Messiah, um, uh, or even to an extent what we mean by God. What happens after the destruction of the temple 
is that people had to explain it. Um, and pretty much everybody blamed the Jews. Uh, so in, in rabbinic sources, it's because pe- there was infighting, right? So the Jews were fighting with each other, and that was a problem. Josephus blames the Zealots, which is a Jewish party. Uh, the Romans blamed the Jews for going into revolt, and the Christians blamed the Jews for killing Jesus. Now, that's much more simplistic in terms of how I just set it out than, than how the discourse actually goes. But that's pretty much the bottom line. And oh, and what happens, right? So the church sees the cross, the which which got read. The cross got has many different understandings, but one major understanding of Jesus' cross is this is the ultimate sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. So in effect, Jesus himself replaces the temple, um, and Jews replaced the temple sacrifice with a reading about the temple sacrifice. Um, and with additional stories and with the development, as Mark pointed out, as of prayer, with the development of the synagogal service, uh, with the memories of the temple and certain evocations of the temple, but without a temple and without animal sacrifice. Yeah. So, Agent, why don't you talk just for a second about Jesus as a high priest, especially? Oh, yes, there is that. Which um, does, so, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. not an image that you have. You don't have anything quite comparable to that within Judaism. Well, I mean, there's the Melchizedek tradition in Judaism. But anyway, that was my next. But, oh, so let me just put it out there. My next question was, who is Melchizedek, and why is he so important for Christians? Yeah, and why haven't Jews heard of him? Um, <laughs> okay, so in, there's a text in the New Testament called the Epistle to the Hebrews, um, which I have to explain to my students. Jews don't read, and they say, "But it's called the Epistle to the Hebrews." To which I respond, "Yes, but it's in the New Testament, so it's not in our canon." Um, And this text has um, a a quite distinct Christology. By Christology, I mean teachings about Jesus, teachings about the Christ. Um, In the other text, Jesus is the son of David, the household of David, which is the household of the tribe of Judah, is the royal tribe, not the priestly tribe. The priestly tribe is Levi. But what the epistle to the Hebrews does is it actually turns Jesus into a high priest, And since he's not from the family of Levi, let alone the family of Aaron, uh, they make him a high priest on what is called the order of Melchizedek or in Greek Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this fellow who shows up in effect out of the blue in Genesis chapter 14. And it turns out that Abraham pays tithes to him and he's a priest. And he also shows up in Psalm 110, which in the Greek talks about this priestly order of Melchizedek. So it's a unique order, and the only other member of this order besides Melchizedek happens to be Jesus. So the image in the epistle to the Hebrews is Jesus is the high priest who serves at the heavenly altar. Um, it, this is in Platonic terms, like the perfect stuff is up in heaven, and then what we have on earth is kind of accidental or flawed. Um, so Jesus is now the perfect high priest serving at the heavenly altar. He is also the perfect sacrifice whose, whose uh, blood is worth more than the blood of um, sheep or goats or cows. So Hebrews is an entirely priestly messianic view following this idea of the order of Melchizedek. For Jews, Melchizedek is a bit of a problem in part because Psalm 110 is such a mess in Hebrew and because Genesis 14 is just plain confusing. Then I'll leave that to Mark. Yeah, I don't I don't have much to say other than the fact that I don't I don't understand Psalm 110. <laughs> And Although we have about five pages on it in the book. Yeah, <laughs> this is really a great example of a text which is 
very unimportant in Jewish tradition, but is super important in Christian tradition, which is one of the points that we made earlier. Right. Or let, so let, let's move on to a different thing. Um, I Thing before that, um, Psalm one ten, kind of like Isaiah seven fourteen, which is the behold the see that pregnant young woman, or behold the virgin will conceive and bear a child. It makes a huge amount of difference whether we're reading this text through the Greek translation, the Septuagint, or whether we're reading in any form of Hebrew, whether the Masoretic text or what the Dead Sea Scrolls give us or any other manuscript in antiquity. And the Church generally read through the Septuagint because the New Testament is written in Greek, and the language of the New Testament writers, the primary language would have been Greek. So their primary Bible mechanism delivery is going to be the Greek text. And their Psalm, t- Psalm 110 has quite different impressions, at least, in the Greek and the Hebrew, in part because the Greek's trying to explain the Hebrew. Yeah, the Greek makes sense. <laughs> More or less. Right. All right. So, so okay, shifting gears a little bit. An eye for an eye versus turn the other cheek. There's a common perception that the old, quote, Old Testament, the, 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 the Jewish um, God, is all about stringency. And the New Testament or Christian uh, Bible God is all about love. Is this accurate? No. <laughs> oh, we didn't even tie that. <laughs> uh, you know, both so-called testaments, it's not a term that I as a Jew like to use, uh, have, because they are compilations, have different ideas by different people over different time periods of what, what God is like. And even the same person can occasionally imagine a God who is loving and a God who is angry in the same way that we can imagine a parent or a child who is loving and angry so uh yeah yeah jump in no go ahead i was just joking and i would say that the people who think that there is no love uh of god and by god in the hebrew bible or the tanakh or the old testament should simply read it where it talks about divine love for Israel, divine love for humans in general, although there are some very problematic passages in it, which do talk about uh, divine anger and divine vengeance. And those who think that the New Testament only is talking about a a loving God should certainly read the New Testament to the very end, including the book of Revelation, which to, to pick up on the language you used from most people's perspective has a very Old Testament perspective of what God is like, even though it is a New Testament book, which shows that this Old Testament, New Testament dichotomy about the image of, of God is really an incorrect dichotomy. On the eye for an eye business, um, and, and the statement shows up three times in the Tanakh, and it looks like it's, it's dropped in there somewhat out of context. So that's already a problem. Uh, we, we don't see that ever being enacted. And then when we get to rabbinic literature, um, this would be Baba Kama, uh, the rabbis make it very clear that you cannot enact an eye for an eye. It is rather a legal principle. Why? Because no two eyes are equal. I mean, if I have terrible vision and you have perfect vision, and if you take my eye out and I take yours, this is unequal distribution. And as one rabbi wisely put it, if I put out your eye, but I'm blind, what difference would it make if you put out my eye? So the rabbis work out this lovely formula based on, you know, pain, medical expenses, loss of work due to injury, you know, whatever, and you get paid for it. What Jesus does, and Christians so rarely note this, is change the subject. He 
says, and now I'm in the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, blah, blah, blah. But I say to you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. There's a huge difference between getting a backhanded slap, which is not meant to injure, but meant to humiliate, and losing an eye. So and the, 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 the upshot is nobody's doing an eye for an eye. Um, and to look at Judaism or the quote-unquote Old Testament as invested in retributive justice as opposed to the New Testament in restorative justice, that's Christian apologetic, and it's based on a failed reading of both the New Testament and the Old. Very, very well. Very succinct. Um, okay. Let me just say one more. That one of the hardest things about reading and interpreting the Bible is to know when to take something literally and when not to take something literally. And I would love for someone to put together a Bible where every statement that is to be taken literally is in black and every statement that is not to be taken literally is, I'll just pick another color, arbitrarily is in green. And to hear that individual's justification for how she or he knows what is literal and what is non-literal. And I think if somebody put out such a book, we would have really great street fights about how the Bible should be interpreted. Right. My students will sometimes say, well, you Jews do an eye for an eye, and, and, and we do this turning the other cheek business. In other words, you Jews take your text literally. To which I say, well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Yeah, that literal or not? Oh, no. So why would you assume that Jews are taking some, something literally if you don't take it literally, and then you can reverse it? Um, what do Christians take literally that Jews might not? And that's, that's the question of biblical interpretation. That's one of the things that our book is trying to get at, is that we all have to interpret these texts because they can't just simply, otherwise they're just words on the page. And unless we can read what's in the Bible either the Old Testament, New Testament of Christianity or the Tanakh, but we can't tell what Jews and Christians are thinking unless we read their interpretations on them. Right. So speaking of different interpretations, how do Jews and Christians understand the Passover sacrifice in ancient Judaism? I don't think Christians think about it very much. Um, I, for Christians, at, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, now, the Passover offering is not a sin offering, but nothing stops you from changing it into one, particularly after the temple is destroyed. Um, and Jesus is this Lamb of God who, in fact, according to the Gospel of John, is crucified at the same time the lambs for the Paschal offering are being offered in the temple. Okay. So he, in fact, becomes the new Paschal offering who redeems his people from the slavery of sin uh, to the freedom of, of salvation and so on. Thus, for Christians generally to talk about the Passover sacrifice as we have it uh, explained in Torah is really quite irrelevant. What is relevant is how that sacrifice gets redeployed in terms of imagery and even in terms of words uh, by the New Testament. Uh, Paul thinks about Jesus as the Paschal offering, for example. Yeah, and, and in Judaism, of course, that is totally absent. And when you talk about the Passover sacrifice, first of all, Jews will be well aware of the fact and quite happy about the fact, most of them, that we are no longer offering that sacrifice. But we'll think about Passover in very different terms. We'll think about Passover in terms of redemption 
from Egypt. Well, think about Passover in terms of, excuse this next word, Jesus-less redemption in future time. So there are notions of redemption in both Jesus and both Jewish and Christian readings of the Passover sacrifice, but the way in which those are actualized is very, very different in the two traditions. There's also, and, and this becomes problematic too in Jewish-Christian dialogue, um, it, one can make a pretty decent case that parts of the Passover Seder are meant as anti-Christian polemic. Um, so if, if you lift up the, the matzah and you say, halach ma'anya, this is the bread of affliction. Gee, that kind of looks like in the church lifting up the bread and saying, uh, take, eat, this is my body. Except now you're thinking if you're Jewish, it's affliction, it's matzah. And if you're in the church, it's, it's the body and blood of Jesus. So to what extent was the Passover Seder, as it developed in rabbinic times, as Mark pointed out, Jesus is not eating his mother's matzah ball soup um, at, at, at his, whatever it was. Um, to what extent was it developed uh, in, in not only dialogue, but also debate with the Christian church? Right. All right. Let's see if we could sneak in a few more questions before, before we have to go. How many times is the virgin birth mentioned in the Christian Bible? One technically, one strong illusion. And what does it say about how religious belief uh, in general develops if this central idea uh, of uh, the, the virgin birth um, in the Christian context is only mentioned explicitly one time in the Christian Bible? Yeah, well, the, the question presupposes that quantity equals quality. Um, you can have something that's mentioned only once, but it's like super important. Uh, and something that's mentioned a bunch of times, but nobody really much cares. Um, so I don't want to get into the quality versus quantity thing. The Gospel of Luke strongly hints at it when the angel Gabriel appears to this woman named Mary in Luke and says, Mary, I'm paraphrasing here slightly, you're going to be pregnant. Uh, Mary says, how is this to happen? Because I have not yet known a man. And then Luke says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Now, the gynecology of this is, is above my pay grade. Um, but the suggestion is, in fact, that she is a virgin, virgin at the time of conception. We do not have in the New Testament a virgin birth. Uh, virgin birth implies uh, that the the parturient, the woman, um, is a virgin following the birth, right? So, so it's a birth, but she's still a virgin. Um, so we would call this postpartum virginity. You get that in second century Christian texts, like the pre-gospel, the Protevangelium of James. What you have in Matthew is clearly a virginal conception um, uh, Mary and Joseph, a young couple, we know how old they are, but you know, maybe he's 30, maybe she's 20, a uh, couple from Nazareth. <clears throat> They're engaged. Uh, and an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. This is not surprising by the way, because according to the genealogy, Joseph's father is named Jacob. So I got a Joseph son of Jacob. Of course, he's going to dream dreams. You can bet there's going to be a trip to Egypt anyway. So, uh, Joseph, Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant. Uh, they are engaged. The paperwork has been done, but they haven't yet cohabitated. And he just wants to divorce her quietly. Nothing about stoning, nothing about killing her, just divorce her quietly. Basically get the get, get the bill of divorce and don't make a big stink about this. So he has a dream and in an, a dream, an angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, because he's part of the Davidic household. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit, details not given. And then Matthew, who loves to footnote and wants to anchor Jesus so into the scriptures of Israel, says, and this was done to fulfill what was said by the prophet. And now Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14 in the Greek 
Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, which is what, in fact, it means. So we have Isaiah 7.14 in the Greek seen as predicting a miraculous conception, a conception to a virgin, and that becomes the anchor for this idea of the virginal conception of Jesus. Did you see this? No, because the Hebrew doesn't say anything about a virgin, and it doesn't say will become pregnant. It just says ha'amahara, the pregnant young lady. End of discussion. Yeah, well, it's not quite the end of the discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're suggesting, or somebody listening might infer, I don't think you're suggesting it, that this is an entirely uh, new and novel Christian creation. But on the other hand, the prophetic reading from several weeks ago was from the 13th chapter of the book of Judges, about the birth of Samson. And there, if you read the Hebrew carefully, uh, it is very, very possible that it is the angel who appeared to Mrs. Manoah. She's never named, but that's the husband of Manoah. I'm sorry, the wife of Manoah, the father of Samson. The angel appears. Uh, it's, it says in the text, oh, well, you, you've been akara, you have been bar- barren, but to use one of my favorite uh, Bible English words, behold, you, know, you are now with child. So the notion, again, she's not a virgin, it seems, but the notion that an angel or the Holy Spirit, or use whatever term you, were, you want, can impregnate a woman, uh, I think is an idea which exists in the Hebrew Bible in the Hebrew Bible as well. So there too, there's a little more continuity between the old and the new than meets the eye. And if you're just curious about this particular reading of Judges chapter 13, take a look at the website, thetorah.com, not torah.com, which is a quite different website, but look up thetorah.com and look up Samson's birth. And there you'll see an article which explains the basis in the Hebrew for understanding that particular reading. Right. My Thank you for that. My point was simply that uh, in the Hebrew and the Greek, you're, in the Greek, you're going to see some sort of miraculous conception, maybe. On the other hand, if you say, behold, this, this virgin will conceive, that could also be just delaying the time period. So if I point to you know, like a five-year-old and say, behold, the virgin will conceive, you hope that she grows up to be at least 25, has a life partner and a college degree and a bank account, and then she will conceive. Um, from Mark's point, there are multiple accounts of so-called miraculous conceptions in Judaism in the first couple of centuries, including this same fellow Melchizedek, who turns out to be Noah's what Noah's nephew, um, part of back before the flood stuff. Um, Philo of Alexandria suggests that Abraham had a little bit of help with Sarah. Um, so the idea of these infused uh, special miraculous births—that's part of Judaism. But as Judaism and Christianity began to separate, the miraculous birth tradition typically drops out of Judaism, gets enhanced in Christianity, just as Christianity will spend more time with questions of heaven and hell, and those questions typically drop out of rabbinic literature, which is much much less concerned about salvation and damnation than it is concerned about sanctification in this world by following Torah. And, so, I'm, so, and I'm so happy AJ used the word typically, because... Uh, there's a famous book about the founder of the Hasidic movement about the Baal, Baal Shem Tov called Toldot. Baal Shem Tov, the tales of the Baal Shem Tov or Toldot Habesht in abbreviation. 
And in the original version of that particular book, uh, he he is born of a virgin. So there you see this tradition returning to Judaism, but but that is often cleaned up in later versions of that story. That story is then omitted. So here you see how traditions bounce back and forth and how certain times, certain places, certain people are very attuned to what the Christians are saying and will push back and say, no, 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 that can't be part of our tradition. While others in other periods will try to incorporate certain, again, in scare quotes, Christian elements will end up returning to Judaism as well. All right, and just to clarify, the Baal Shem Tov is uh, living in the 1700s in Eastern Europe. Okay, um, last question. Um, so uh, you provide some guidelines uh, to Jewish and Christian readers of the Bible to prevent them from going off the hermeneutical deep end. What are some of those guidelines that we could share, uh, you could share with our listeners? AJ, why don't you start that? <laughs> um if your reading winds up attacking someone else, it's probably it, it may be accurate historically, but it's probably not a good thing to continue to promote. Uh, there are polemics against non-Jesus believing Jews in the New Testament, and they're very, very harsh. Uh, but there's no reason to bring them forward into the 21st century because we've seen what happens when polemics get get taken to the extreme. I would say the same thing in the Jewish context because I have heard Jews in my own shul, in my own synagogue, um, say things about Christianity that are just plain wrong, like uh, this whole uh, this virginal birth idea is just totally pagan. Uh, but it's not. Um, or the idea of somebody who dies on behalf of other people, vicarious atonement, is totally pagan. But it's not. And we can even see that very, very clearly um, in, in Second Maccabees, which is a book, one of those books like Ben Sirach, that makes its way into the Christian canon, although it's a Jewish book. The idea of the martyr as having some sort of, of salvific value. Um, try not to be um, misled by thinking that if you read a text, you know what the person who holds that takes sacred in how that person interprets it, because otherwise we're going to be having Jews doing temple sacrifice in an eye for an eye, um, and Christians, you know, plucking out their eyes and chopping off their feet. So the text always has to be read, I, I think, respectfully, in a sense of how the people who hold it sacred also read it. Yeah, I think the historical background for when we wrote this book is really quite important. Uh, we wrote this book, the entire draft, while Trump was president. And we and saw well, that. We were out of the country, by the way. Yeah, so I was out of the country. Uh, was, Mark was in Jerusalem, I was in Rome. <laughs> Rome and Jerusalem, wow. <laughs> and, but nevertheless, despite our distance, we were very aware of what was happening in the country and the lack of civility. And this is really a book which we hope is about civility about being kind, about being sympathetic readers, about not, we're not encouraging anybody to give up on their religious commitments or their methods of reading, but we are encouraging everybody to understand that there are other multiple ways of reading the text and that we should not go around delegitim delegitimating those particular ways. And we should try to understand the other way of reading the Bible uh, from a sympathetic viewpoint. And we're really hoping that that could increase a type of civility that you have, which uh, 
was so necessary during that particular precedent. And things are continuing. The type of civility has really been lost. So we hope by modeling different readings in a particular book, which is so central to both religious traditions, we're also able to offer a larger message about understanding others and not necessarily agreeing with them. And there certainly are times where you have to disagree with them very, very strenuously, but there are better and worse ways of doing that. So that's what I also hope we're trying to model. Right. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Uh, That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.